this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Well, here we are again with another bonus episode. We're coming down kind of the end of these for this particular season. We've got to decide what we're going to do, but we've had a good time doing them. So I would imagine there'll be some, something, something, something. I don't know mm-hmm. what. Yeah, we haven't really thought about it. Thank you all for your feedback. Um, the Half-Baked Ideas bonus episode was surprisingly popular. In terms of download velocity, the most popular of the bonus episodes we've done. And I'd, maybe it's because it wasn't a specific movie or book. It was more generally accessible. Maybe you wanted to hear me make a fool of myself. Any of those things, I'm welcome. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that uh, it was interesting. I have some follow-up about some of those ideas, but that's beyond the scope of this show. I guess in terms of pre-work for the next bonus episode, if you are so inclined. So this is coming out on Wednesday, October 30th. The next bonus episode will be a, a book club, book nerd movie hour with um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which I couldn't be more excited to talk about, I have to say. It's not one we had on our list when we started, but once once it got on the list, you're like, we need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it over the weekend, and I am so ready for this discussion. Yeah. So that will be coming up if you wanted to watch that um, in anticipation of uh, being ready for that. But today is The Water Dancer by Taniasi Coates, um, which... We decided to do relative. I mean, as we got into the season, one of or the bonus season, one of the things we want to do is be receptive to things bubbling up as being interesting topics. I think there's one we would, would have picked on its own, but that was a pick for Oprah's Book Club, and that Oprah's Book Club is also launching on Apple TV News Plus Ultra Diamond Platinum. Um, I guess in two, three days, Friday, November 1st, it goes live, and I mm-hmm. believe the interview or whatever that show is going to be about the water dancer will be available from day one. Maybe at the end of this episode, we'll speculate, wonder, um, do some um, headcanon for what we'd like that interview to look like. But for now, let's get into the water dancer by Taniasi Coates. But before we do that, let's take a break. Okay. So it's a new book. So we're going to be treading into spoiler territories to flesh out a discussion. But let's, before we get into that, let's do, What's the book about and our general impressions of it? And then we'll get into spoiler territory. We'll make some sort of loud noise you can't miss if you're driving along in your car and, and be um, unwillfully <laughs> unspoiled. You want to take summary, Rebecca? How would you like sure. to do this? We can yeah. fill in. You, you're usually better at a clean summary than I am. So why don't you start? Oh, well, thank you. Um, okay. So the book is about and is narrated by a man named Hiram Walker who is a slave on a plantation in Virginia. And he is the son of the plantation owner. Uh, he has a brother who is white, um, the legitimate son of the plantation owner and his wife. And the book begins with Hiram and his half-brother Maynard coming home from somewhere in a wagon. The horses are pulling them Um they are going across a bridge. There's an accident. They find themselves in the river under the bridge. Maynard drowns and Hiram lives. And in the process of like almost dying, Hiram has what 
I guess in the early part of the book, it seems like he's having some kind of vision. Um, something happens where he's not really conscious of what's going on, but he is seeing a vision. He sees um, his grandmother or his mother um, do, performing a dance on the edge of the water, balancing a, a jar on her head. It's called padding juba um, is the kind of dance. And then he wakes up like many hours, maybe days later, he's not sure, back on the plantation and they tell him what has happened. Um, and he's trying to put together this experience that he had. It turns out that it's a power um, that they refer to as conduction. And as the book goes on, Hiram uh, attempts to run away from the plantation and is ultimately drafted into the work of what he finds out to be the Underground Railroad. Um, and they specifically want him because he can if he can learn how to fully develop and then harness this power of conduction, he will be able to move not just himself, but other people that he's trying to rescue from place mm -hmm. to place using it, like move them from a slave state like Virginia up to Philadelphia, where they could be free. Um, and so the, that's the central gist is Hiram trying to get out of slavery get himself to freedom, and then help move other people to freedom, he figures out that conduction is tied closely to memory. Um, his mother was taken in a really traumatic way. He doesn't remember a lot of it. Um, and he discovers that the more he can allow himself to remember, he can harness those memories. And you use the, the feeling of like tapping into the emotion of a powerful and painful memory mm. to make the conduction occur. So um, that's a large part of the book as well as his emotional journey of how to remember in order to harness the power of that. I think that's about as much as we can say without spoiling too much more. I, there's there's that that line of which you need to say something about the book to to tell people what it's mm -hmm, about. Mm -hmm. But you, if you cross it, you start to spoil. I guess we could call it the expiration date, like on a milk. You can go yeah. up to that date, but no further. <laughs> um, right. I think we're at the line. That's the line yeah. of um, useful information that doesn't actually spoil anything. Um. So in in. It's, let's have a spoiler-free discussion of our experience of reading the book, maybe our expectations for the book. Um, in that regard, maybe I'll go first. I, in our buy-sell hold, I held only because I felt like the the um, symbolic price was high. Big author, mm -hmm. big book, had been named you know as one of the best books of the year, Publishers Weekly Start Review, Oprah. I think at that point, that point, we had not picked it because I think you DM'd me when the choice was made about, you know, na 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 look what happened to your hold. Um, <laughs> nothing, you would never be so ungracious. Uh, maybe less gracious, but that not that specific <laughs> level of ungraciousness. Um, Somewhere else on the scale of ungraciousness. So, and, then, and then the first wave of reviews hit. So I think this is worth saying that some of the reviews that came out, maybe in the general tenor of the reviews was, interesting book maybe not maybe not an instant classic which was a that's kind mm -hmm. of the bar that's one of the reasons i was selling i guess right that's one of the reasons like that was the expectation is that this was going to be an instant classic and so then my expectations came back down um i just finished it the last few pages this morning i have to say that there are parts of it i found very powerful um there were parts of it that did feel to me like a first novel mm -hmm. um and it is like we. I don't. I didn't do much reading about Coates's talking about the the process of writing the book, 
because I can get into spoiler territories. And this is one of those situations where, unlike we'd done for Shawshank, I'd had so much experience with the art itself that I really couldn't be polluted, you know, or, or by by any reading about how it came to be. Right. But at this point, I really felt myself primed to be suaded, <laughs> persuaded, dissuaded, <laughs> other 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 forms of suaded by people talking about it. So once I saw the first couple of reasons, I was like, oh no, I, I don't want to touch that. So yeah. I don't know if he has much experience writing fiction before this. He is a wonderful memoirist and writer of essays. And that definitely, his, his writing ability on the sentence and paragraph level, and I think on the idea level too, shines through. Um, I think there are some weaknesses that in the book that are of a, a, soft, or a, a, a freshman effort. Now, if this was a 24-year-old writer's first book, I think we'd be shouting from the rooftops, but it's not that. Um, so I, I think that goes into, I think it was a really interesting book. I don't think for some of the, the topic and structure, I don't think it's going to be a runaway success. Um, but we can talk more about that. But I think I'm much more excited for Coates' next novel than I, I mean, I am, I am looking forward to the next novel. There's a lot of promise here as a fiction writer. I'm not sure if I would prefer, I, I'm, I'm this is non-rhetorical. This is not a Midwestern passive-aggressive thing. I'm not sure if I have a choice. Do I want Coates' next nonfiction book or his next fiction book? Mm. Which would I pick? That was something I was interested in going into this. I think I find myself conflicted. What I think is an endorsement of the, the fiction, to say that, yeah. um, at this mm-hmm. point. Um, again, without saying too much more, with, without spoiling it much more, I'd say it's definitely worth reading. If you like literary fiction, I think you're going to find a, light, a lot to like here. If you like coats, I think you're going to find a lot to like here. Does it have what it takes to cross over into people who don't care about coats or don't care about literary fiction in a way that something like the Underground Railroad, um, Colson White has, which it's hard not to think about them side by side, weirdly. Yeah. Um, I felt a lot of connections to Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. I think there was a lot of connections to contemporary, you know, recently contemporary. 20th century black writing about race and slavery, which is something we could get into in race. There's a lot of strings attached there. So if you were interested in that genre, that topic set, there's a lot to be interested in here. Um, so that's that's my take at this yeah. particular point. Does that, well, I don't know, do, do you feel like you learned anything about my experience from what I just said? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very similar to what my experience mm. with the book was like. And we should say, like, sometimes we talk about how the reading is yes. going when we're in the process, but we have not talked to each other about the book no. at all. So this is all fresh to us. Um, I... I really identify with a lot of that. I think that it has the shot at runaway success because of the Oprah stamp of approval. Um, It's not, I agree with you that it's not lined up to be an instant classic because of the story, but on the idea level and the sentence level, like there are just some knockout sentences and really beautiful images Mm -hmm. in this book. It is excellent. And there's so much to discuss. Like, I do think this is a relatively ideal book club selection mm. for a lot of reasons. There are um, there are things about how the book is put together to talk about. There are a lot of, of course, like big ideas and pieces of history and social concepts to talk about. The way that the characters, like the characters, do a lot of talking, and these are very there's a insightful. lot of talking. Yeah, these, they're like and and the inner monologues of the characters is really fleshed out and robust so like they do a lot of thinking about their lives and they do a lot of talking about their lives and the world that they live in and i think that gives a lot to chew on as a 
book club discussion book. Um, and it does bear the DNA of, of all those writers that you were listing. It felt to me a lot like, and this is also not a knock, like when a band comes out with their first album and their first album is like, right. really shows um, who all of their influences are. And it takes a little while to find their, for the band to find their own voice. I think that mm-hmm. um, that's what's, I feel like that's what we're going to see happen with Coates, that the second novel, I'm very interested if he continues writing fiction and what that looks like. Um, I also didn't want to like taint my experience of it, of the book at all. So I didn't read any reviews ahead of time. I think before we knew that Oprah had picked it and before we knew then that we were going to read it for the show, I read an interview. Um, I think it was maybe an interview with Michael Shabon where he was talking about hmm. um, how Ta-Nehisi Coates like, sent him or he and Coates were talking together. I can't remember, but one of them was discussing that when he when Coates started the writing process for the fiction, he was sending excerpts to Shaban and Shaban was telling him like this isn't fiction, like here's what you need to do to get your head around it. Like he certainly had some like high-powered mentors um who also are familiar with bending genre through literary fiction. Michael Shaban does that a lot and I'm sure that Coates worked with other writers as well. Like it's a solid first effort. Yeah. Um it's, but it, I, yeah, it's not, I don't think this is, I, I don't think that it is one of the best novels of the year. Like, um, one way that I tried to think about it was like, if I got this book in the mail and it had some unknown writer's name mm-hmm. on it and I read it, how would I assess it? Um, I, I think it's a great step in Ta-Nehisi Coates's career um and it's very promising but i don't think that in the collection of other novels that i've read this year and the novels that i've seen be up for um best book of the year i don't think it quite hits that threshold um but it's not it's also not like super far off um i enjoyed it a whole lot more than like where the crawdads sing (laughs) well yeah i mean that that one is clear to me i guess in the tenor of our tone you know the other one that we are poised to like or at least be in the realm of liking, was the Testaments. Mm-hmm. And in my experience of reading, this is a f- much more interesting book yes, to talk yeah. about. And I think it's fair to say you and I have this in common, which is whether or not the book is interesting to talk about is a vector along which we judge its quality, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So that is different than some other people and the crawdad- where the crawdadsing might bear that out. If the reading experience tick some boxes for and have a certain feeling about it, then then you quote unquote like a book. Whereas this this book, I probably, I would say I probably like this book maybe more than the average reader because there's so much here. And it, and it, and it travels in a vein with which I am both um, mm-hmm. familiar and sympathetic. I mean, like, I like this. I like these yeah. authors in which Coates is um, the tradition in which he is writing. And I know them well, and I have long experience with them. So I'm predisposed to be interested in it. Maybe I would be predisposed not to like it, to see this as a mm-hmm. facsimile or something. I was trying to wonder, but I, I don't think so. I think... It does feel like a first novel, a very, very good first novel. And I think maybe for a first novel, Coates had a free swing at the plate in a lot of ways with the public, with editors, with his advance, with getting Michael Chabon to give you notes, right? Right. Um, And he didn't swing and miss. He didn't foul it off. I think he made solid contact, but it's not a home run um, for reasons we can talk about once we get into some spoilers. I I think that's a really great point that he did have really like a a free shot, I think. And it's a really ambitious book. And if anything, I think he would have been served by the advice to 
try to do fewer things mm. in this book. The like the magical realism sort of genre elements I don't think are necessary for the kind of story that he's trying to tell and for the messages that we get about slavery and about what it is to live under slavery and how that impacts an individual and their relationships and the way that they think about the world and what it is to be free or not free. Um, We don't need the magic in the book to get a really great story that conveys those things in a way that reaches more readers than nonfiction does. And so I think in that respect, like the move to fiction is very smart or to add fiction to his toolkit is very smart Mm. for Coates, who is just undeniably one of the most important public thinkers that we have. Um, I did read a piece on Vox that like I had seen the link before we read the book, but I didn't read the piece until this morning. Um, and that writer in the Vox piece was like, you know, he's almost Coates has almost single handedly been able to bring the discussion about reparations. Yeah for African-Americans into the, like back into the mainstream in a serious way and have it be taken seriously. But the kinds of people who, the kinds of readers who are open to a big nonfiction book about race or a collection of essays about race, or are going to read the thing that he did for, I believe it was the Atlantic several years ago about the case for reparations. Like that's a much smaller subset than the group of readers who will pick up a big novel that explores um, that explores race and explores slavery and goes at these big concepts through fiction. Um, and I think he can, he stands to reach a much wider base that way. Um, it's just not, it's not fully executed. There are so many things to try to pull off well in the book. Um, I, I think he would have been well served to tailor it back to edit a few of those elements down and really hone the remaining ones carefully. If you have been listening to the show at all, I you know speak for a I think it's going to be Rebecca to this, to some degree the the I th- was thinking of first novels by Colson Whitehead and Toni Morrison in the, in mm-hmm. this context, which are smaller books that are heavy, heavily metaphorical and do, I don't know, the intuition is to, it's not magical realism. It's speculative fiction of a different kind, but it's a smaller book. Um, the scope is narrower about Lila Mae Watson and elevator inspections, which even now feels like I'm having a stroke every time I say that's what the plot of The Intuitionist is. And then The Bluest Eye with Pocola, which is really the story, a character study of one particular character. And both of those are, I think, more successful first novels, if only because they were trying to do less. And in trying to do less, they did that less lesser thing better. This is magical realism. It's historical fiction. It crosses borders and countries and the cast of characters is enormous and the stories within the stories are very complicated. Um, And so I think Coates' ambition serves him well in that regard. Mm -hmm. But to have a, you know, and and maybe that's, maybe he's, maybe he's past the tightly, tightly edited first novel and the second interesting mess novel was you know already ready, but I couldn't help thinking of like this is what Whitehead and Morrison did, and it can be no higher praise that I'm thinking of this book along <laughs> those side those two. So take that as a context for the relative success of it. Um, but I couldn't help thinking about both of those elements had elements of the speculative. What I think of which magical realism is but a subset of speculative fiction. We can argue about that. Um, <laughs> we don't need to do that for three yeah, hours today. But they're operating in the, a similar vein of thinking about um, a certain 
a certain way of thinking about African-American experience in, Amer- in America, it's African-Americans implied in that, and using a speculative fiction metaphor to say something about it. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, really sh- narrowed the focus of the book, where this one really expands yeah. um, the, te- the, the lens in which to look. And I think, that's all, I think that's just a lot to do with your first novel. I just think it is. Yeah. It is. It's just a lot. And there's a lot that happens in the book. There's a lot of plot. And I think like, you know, one of the ways that I've explained literary fiction as a concept to people is like, well, usually literary fiction by itself is about the ideas Mm -hmm. of the book, much less than it's about what happens in the book. And this book is trying is well, the book is thoroughly about the ideas, but it's also trying to be about what happens and trying to be about plot. And I think that's just a tough trick for almost anyone to pull off. Um, And to like to use Morrison's example, if you say like, what is the bluest eye about, you can boil that down to the two sentences that it's about a young black girl who fantasizes about being white and looking like like mm-hmm. her dolls who with you know blonde hair and white skin and blue eyes for the life that that would give her and that's the vehicle through which Morrison explores race and class and color and gender and power mm-hmm. and the Coates novel you just can't quite sum up that much because you have all these ideas but then also all this other stuff that happens yeah. um and it's it, it man i think he executed a lot of it very well just especially for how much there is to get done in 400 pages yeah. um it's just this was a it was a very big bite yeah and before we, i mean one thing i was thinking as i was finishing up the book i either wanted the book to be 100 pages lo- shorter or 200 pages longer yeah. like either to be like an epic epic which it's just on the cusp of being or being a narrower um, a, a narrow, a, a narrower frame. Like it's sort of in between. Whereas, from you know, again, I'm not a writer, but as as a critic, as a reaction, I felt like, oh, there could be a this could be an epic kind of a story, or it could have been on the on the level of the bluest eye, in which Hiram's power is the central metaphor and the exploration and exposition of that is what the book is about. But that's not what the Water Dancer is. For all the talk of the conceit and the blurb. The, his power to conduct people over space and time is weirdly sidelined um, for much of the book. And I was—I don't know that the book is lesser for it. I found the pieces in the middle maybe more interesting to me, but let's leave that as our hook um, as we get into a spoiler-filled discussion. Um, but before we do that, let's do another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmail. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammam's secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Well, we've been talking around it a little bit. Let's talk, can we be more specific about the weaknesses of the book? Mm. Um, I'll start here. And I have to say, it took me 25 pages to refine some sympathy for the book. Like I felt the first 25 pages, this opening incident, which is in a Morrisonian tradition of not really giving you much purchase to hold on to, to understand yeah. what is going mm-hmm. on. Um, and, and I'll boil it down to this. The book begins with a sentence that begins with and, which, look, I, I've been teaching, I've taught writing before, and I teach people that it's okay to start a sentence with a preposition. I'm not sure it's great to start a novel with a preposition. We are already not sure. And I think that's kind of a microcosm of the first, I don't know, section of the book. I, I don't have, uh, I read it on ebook, so I, I'm not sure that mm. it's helpful to break it down by page numbers. But it took a while for me to understand what I was supposed to understand. And then the whole book doesn't traffic in that kind of portrayal. So there's an unevenness at the beginning that feels like we need a set piece or wanting the set piece of this memory that we're not, we don't know where we are in space and time. And neither does the character, which is sort of strange. Um, You know, Morrison would do something like this, but the character wouldn't be confused by what's going on. We might be confused seeing it through the Mm -hmm. character's eye. In this case, the character doesn't know what's happening. Um, and so it's very disorienting, and I think it takes a while for the book to reorient itself. And I, I think that idea of what the plot, what the, what's the main idea here? We've got too many ideas, I think, on the whole. And yeah. I think it shows from the beginning. And I don't know which I would pick. I don't know if I'd pick the conduction, like the, the, the magical realism part, or would I pick sort of the the nitty gritty sort of spy craft of the underground railroad, which I found very interesting in the cast of characters he gives us here and their different relationship to the task and the quality. I found all that stuff really compelling and being pulled between the realist part of like how you actually got people out and what was at stake and how these things worked and the realities of the relationship between people and the compromises and the, and the idealism and all the, the muck, as I guess he says, that kind of was mm-hmm. very fascinating to me, but then to be pulled out of it, for the magical realism, I wanted to be either place, I guess, and I and I don't yeah. know how to be how to have been in both. What was your experience of that? Pretty similar. Um, I 
was like I had conveniently forgotten when I was going into the reading of this book that Moses was a nickname for Harriet oh, Tubman. Yeah, okay. And so when I and now we'll go fully into the land of spoilers, mm-hmm. but once Hiram starts working with the Underground Railroad folks and they're telling him that he's not the only person who has this power of conduction and his relatives aren't the only ones, but there is a woman who works for the railroad that they call Moses and she has it and that's how she does it. And then it gets revealed that that's Harriet Tubman. I was like, oh, right. I should have seen that coming. But since I had forgotten that was a nickname for her, I didn't see it coming. And I was like, you know, I think it weakens the concept of Harriet Tubman if we have to believe that what Harriet Tubman did, she did through magic instead of through just sheer determination and bravery. And that the spycraft stuff was really compelling and the like finding out that the woman that was going to marry um his Hiram's brother Maynard was like was going through with that relationship really just as a way to like get into their plantation and to try to like infiltrate because she's all she's part of the underground mm-hmm. and she's running some of the operations in Virginia she has very different ways of doing things than they do up in Philadelphia like all the sort of the dual relationships that people have and the secrets that they're keeping and there's a real ends justify the means element to some of what Corinne puts Hiram through after um, yeah. she catches him and but he's not free to go to Philadelphia yet like that was difficult to read but believable and um there is already so much to chew on there that I really would have just been fine if this had been a novel about how people actually pulled off the underground railroad and that it yeah. didn't have magical elements i didn't think it needed those and that hiram is so as you were saying like he's so uncertain about what this power is or and how to harness it and it's so entangled with the memories of his mother and trying to tap into these very painful things that it just that's just a lot to try to get done and a lot to keep track of as a Mm -hmm. reader um I don't I don't know like I also was trying to play the game with myself like would I have finished this if I didn't have to read it for the podcast and I think I would have made like 100 pages in maybe 150 and been like I am just not sure where this is going and I probably would have finished it just to know. Yeah. Um, I think 100 pages was a, that got me through. I think yeah. not without without having the paper copy to so we can Rosetta Stone about what we're talking about. I think 100 pages is enough. I'm more thinking about the first 30 or 40 mm, as, yeah. so to speak, you know, the first half hour of reading for me. Um, yeah, I think that first 30 or 40 pages is a it's a relatively tough hang if you're not used yes. to reading a certain type of literary fiction that opens that way or that you and I call in media mess. <laughs> That's right, in media mess. Yeah. Um, that like without the Oprah stamp of approval on this, I think a lot of readers might have just, you know, picked this up and found that to be a difficult or confusing opening and not carried through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I think Coates is needs to be saying lots of thank yous to Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is historical fiction can trend towards like historical fiction, historical faction where it's like leans more like you're more novelizing things that are generally agreed upon to have happened. I'm thinking like, you know, my favorite is the killer angels, right? About Gettysburg Mm -hmm. where it's fiction because you can't know everything, but it's, basically, you know, kind of uh, Jurassic parking the frog DNA into the dinosaur DNA so so that you can yeah. recreate it. This isn't that. And the Tubman is, I think, the most obvious example of that. I'd forgotten her nickname was Moses too, except mm. that when she said it was from Maryland, that I did remember. That's a weird thing for remember that Harry Tubman was from Maryland. And I was like, oh, 
this is this is who it is. I had this similar kind of idea of what what it is it a comment on Tubbin's legacy? Like why um, enchant? I guess, for lack of a better term, Tubman's actual achievement with magic. I was, I have to admit, once I knew or suspected strongly that it was Harriet Tubman, I thought she actually wasn't going to be magic. Like the magic was oh. part of her, it's kind of the mystery and ethos is that, mm-hmm. and that, that, that he was actually magic was going to be the reveal and that she wasn't. And this was part of her trickster um, figureness of like, if people think she's magic, then she'd get away with things and, you know, but that she was actually magic and then became for him a sort of Gandalf figure of guiding him through and helping him figure out, you know, that he needed a talisman to harness the power and eventually comes to his aid in the end. I'm not sure what to make of that. I don't know. Could you have used a different, you know, not make it Tubman and make it another woman working, a, a black woman working in the Underground Railroad? I, I don't really know. But I thought that was, that seemed to me a fulcrum for thinking about what Coates is doing with the book and this idea of memory and release, um, escape and forgetting, all being sort of tied up uh, into one knot. Um, I think for me... Is 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 it too? Is it fair to say that the metaphor is fairly obvious? Am I am I being obtuse in saying that you know memory I mean, is a kind is is the way to release? Is is it is it just that simple? I, I keep trying I to go it, farther than that, but I, I'm having a harder time going farther than I that. I think it I think it is that simple yeah. that like you can't heal from something that you're not aware of or that you're not looking at, and that this is sort of an alchemy like what Hiram is able to do is like is alchemize trauma into a power that allows him to rescue himself and others and that he has to release the he has to look at the really bad stuff and release Hmm. some of it in order to harness the power and and be able to do the thing I just this is a quibble Um, I hated that the magical power was called conduction on the railroad like i I just needed it's just it to a be little too much, else. like just notch too back. I think I agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with yeah. that. Just a quibble, but uh, that felt a little too on the nose. And if that power just has existed for generations and either was never used with a purpose, but just sort of happened, like I think it would have been called something else, mm-hmm. um, yeah. especially for generations before the railroad existed. There's even one point when he's realizing what's going on and a paragraph ends with just conju- condu- uh, conduction, period, conduction, period, conduction, period. And I'd had a little bit of like, do you ha- I-, I get it. I just You don't even have to say it at that point. Like mm-hmm. There was a little bit of polishing the penny on some of those moments that, again, maybe isn't trusting the reader quite enough, trusting the material quite enough. Um, again, I think that's it sinks, rises to the level of quibble, sinks to the level of quibble, but it's one I, I sh- I'm not sure which direction from where I am that particular quibble yeah, is, but I, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a lot of telling and there yes. could be more showing. So, and in, the stories is part of it, but it's a lot mm, of telling. It's a lot of telling. And and Coates, like this makes sense, right? For the kind of writer that Coates is, he's uh, he writes arguments right. he writes essays he lays out he tells you what idea he is going to lay out and then he lays it out and then he summarizes it and at the end you understand why you're supposed to believe him and agree with him and this is i i feel like this is a 
tricky criticism to make because all the ideas of the book are solid and powerful and important. But also those ideas could be conveyed through like we could see what the characters do instead of having the characters just describe all of the stuff to us and then give us their interpretations of them. So like um, one example that happens early in the book is um, Hiram has just been moved up into yeah. the main house. He's going to serve up in the main house and he's uh, taking care of he's like working at a party, basically. And the people of the quality, as he calls the white people, the sort of upper crust white people um behave they like they devolve into behaving horribly at this party and he's watching all of it happen and so there's this quote that says while they played at aristocrats we were their well-appointed and stoic attendants but when they tired of dignity the bottom fell out new games were anointed and we were but pieces on the board it was terrifying there was no limit to what they would do at this end of the tether nor what my father would allow them to do Hmm. and you get that idea, but we could have just had a scene of what happened at the party. What were like, what was the game that occurred or what were a couple of games or what are the words coming out of the attendees mouths that, that demonstrate this to us rather than it all just going through the Hiram filter. Like it just feels like the characters speak in Ta-Nehisi Coates essays. Mm, Yeah. I think that's fair. And, and it's a shame too, for this because the, the, parts of the book that are narrated in the present action are very strong. I think maybe the strongest parts of the book when Mm -hmm. Hiram is um, captured from his first attempt to to escape. I guess it's his only attempt to escape. And there's this ritualized serial hunt where the, the, the slave catchers every night release him into the woods with some other people, with other fugitives. And, um, hunt them down and then they do it all again the next day and it happens over a course of weeks and we see him developing strategies, reacting um, it's very much a present moment action, Very, it's wildly compelling and then he's put in chains and the, mm-hmm. the narration of his captivity is extremely compelling. Later when he's first, I think when he's first comes up to the, the big house um, and he's navigating his new world is very compelling. When he first gets into Philadelphia um, as part of the underground's, you know, main operations, and he's walking the streets and observing, and you can kind of see him mm-hmm. dealing with the world. Those parts are all strong, and, and I like the individual stories because he'll like this is a thing that happens again and again. He'll meet someone, and they'll tell him the story of what happened to them, or I'll have a dream, and he'll get the story of something that happens to them. And I think I understand, or I have a sense of what Coates is doing is that part of what's going on here is a a resurrection of stories and voices that that are lost. And part of what the conduction is is not just transportation for the living, but a, a recollection and a reconstitution of the dead or missing. Um, not, not unlike what sort of beloved the character is. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's a more productive run rather than sort of a ghoulish, you know, unstable one. This is sort of a way of channeling um, and re- the channeling remembrance and, you know, making the metaphor of memory as power real. And so part of that is the memory and, and, and the way that memory tends to work and transmitted from person to person is story. So I get why we get so much. Um, but it does feel like it gets, I don't know, it's like the plot from when he joins the Underground Railroad to when he goes back to Lockless, which is the plantation on which he was grown up. It's a lot of meeting people and them telling him stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and I felt like that that's where it got it slowed down the most for me and in the shorter version of this 80 pages of that goes for me mm-hmm. um in the longer version of that we get much more spycraft and sort of like the Jason Borning of Hiram Walker you know becomes um you know uh really embedded in, in what's going on there so that I'm not sure what to say about that, except yeah. that's my observation, I guess. I um, think there's another way to that that could have been done, and this is coming straight from my own personal preference for mm. novels that have like a carousel of narrators. Yeah. But um, he could have, you know, I think we could have seen Hiram meet this person and get a hint of what their story was, and then we could have an interstitial chapter that is that person's. Yeah. lived experience where we see them like Georgie, I think is a great example. Georgie is the character who tells Hiram that, um, or the, who Hiram understands to be part of the railroad and who's mm-hmm. going to help him get out of Lockless. But Georgie is a double agent who betrays Hiram and Sophia and that's how they get captured. Um, and there's a point where Hiram reflects, cause I wrote this quote down because I thought it was really important. Um, he's thinking about Georgie and he says to fully accept his betrayal was to accept the fullness of what had been done to us, how thoroughly they had taken us in so that even our own heroes, our own myths were but tools to further maintain the task. And yes, mm-hmm. Also, I would love a chapter where I got to be in Georgie's head or alongside Georgie as that happened to him, as um, members of the quality or of Ryland's hounds that hunt down escaped slaves turned him into this double agent. How did it happen? Yeah. Um, I wanted that story. I wanted more of Sophia's experience. I wanted um, Atha that he meets in Philadelphia. Mm. And I think we could have heard from those characters and gotten their stories in a way that that truly like that truly made them the narrator of their own story because I do think the storytelling is an integral part of this for the reasons that you're listing mm-hmm. about bringing back these memories and that's explicitly something that the members of this version of the underground railroad are doing as well where they're keeping lots of documents and they're keeping letters and they're getting people's stories and recording them so that even those people yeah. who are dead and gone, their story and their experience and what was done to them is remembered. And that that idea of maintaining memory and building structures around memory is really critical here. Um, there were just ways that all these stories, I think, could have been done more elegantly in yeah, a work of fiction. Think, and, and, yeah. and the elegance, I guess, you know, when we mean by elegance, it's a combination of style and simplicity is typically what we mean mm-hmm. when we talk about elegance. And caking off a couple of layers, like did Hiram need to both have a photographic memory and this conduction superpower? Did we need to get mm-hmm. all the stories told to him directly? And he was also in charge of going through people's personal effects and like recreating their, it's like peel back one layer on either. And I think you don't lose much. And and what you gain is a a clarity um, about what's happening and sort of a little more space to dwell on some of the other other particular moments. But uh, let's do another sponsor. And then let's, let's come back to some of the things we found interesting outside of like, evaluating the book as a whole, because I have quite a few things on this particular. Mm -hmm. All right, here's a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iamide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say, these two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that 
off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iyamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Lavender Khan and Little District Books. Lavender Khan, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C., It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA plus authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of The Blood Debts Duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottas with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newsom, author of My Government Means to Kill Me. And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face, and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20 plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult, and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft, and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival. Um, you can see some of Coates's, and I've read Coates in various forms for a while now, and it was interesting to see some of his interests, his intellectual interests about thinking about race and thinking about history coming through in in an imaginative form. And one of them was just his ability to deal with complexity. Um, There's there's very few good guys or bad guys, even the white slave owners that we get any kind of portrayal of. Like there are the Rylands hounds, you know, white people, Mm -hmm. but they don't, they're not portrayed in, in, a, in a way we'd understand. They're there, but they're not characters, so to speak. They're like more like forces of nature or, you know, demons or something like that. But Howell Walker, Corinne Quinn, some people, the other people they meet on the Underground Railroad, Maynard, um, his brother, they certainly are guilty of all that can be said. Um, but they're also mixed up with the slaves, and the slaves are mixed up with them. And as, as said a couple of times, there's nobody clean there's nobody pure. And then when it comes time for Hiram and Thena and Sophia and Harriet Tubman to make pragmatic decisions about the lives of other people, they have to do calculus too. There is no obvious answer. There's no good solution. There is no obvious way. They each take it and do the best they can according to what they understand or what's available to them. But in each case, we're shown like, there was no right thing to do here. There was no virtuous right. path that's completely virtuous. There were virtuous paths, but all of them 
made a choice for a variety of reasons that could be hard from a different point of view to understand. And I just thought that was fascinating to see to see laid out in that way. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating as well. And that just one of the core ideas of the book is like is not just that being prevented and being unallowed freedom or disallowed freedom is harmful and wrong, but the characters each wrestling with what does freedom mean? And um, why would Hiram want to run? Why would Sophia want to run? At one point, um, Sophia tells Hiram that what you must get is that for me to be yours, I must never be yours. Mm -hmm. And the particular experience of being a woman in slavery and the ways that women's bodies are used um, against them and to keep them um, under control. At one point, she even predicts to Hiram that like she'll get pregnant and then they'll like then she'll never be able to leave and get out of this relationship that she has with Nathaniel Walker. Um, that like her, she's telling him, "I want to get free for different reasons than you do." And then what what exists on the other side is different. Um, Atha tells him, "Finding freedom is the only is only the first part. Living free is a whole mm-hmm. other." Um, and after he's, after Hiram's been to Philadelphia and has experienced that for himself when he goes back to Lockless as Jason Bourne functionally, (laughs) um, it's, he feels the weight of oppression in a new way because he has felt freedom as a reality and not just as a concept. I thought all of that is really fascinating. And then you also get Coates looking at the nuances of people who do the right thing, but for not necessarily the wrong reasons, but for not the best reasons. So near the end, he's talking about Corinne and about white people who um, are fighting against slavery, not so much because like of the humane reasons or the humanist reasons that this is just a wrong thing to do to other humans, but because they don't want to be the kind of person right. who is seen as believing in it. And the quote there is, so their opposition was a kind of vanity, a hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. And that's so incisive and so convicting and I think also very applicable to some of the work that gets done now in social justice um, Mm. that good things are done um, but are they done for the right reasons and he's that he's willing to ask that question and he I think is telling us that it matters that the answer to that question matters because Corinne does get results but she puts Hiram through awful things along the way that that are also not justified on the page. Um, like I don't think that Coates is letting Corinne off the hook for the Mm-mm. ritual hunt thing. She says, I had to do it. There were reasons you don't understand. This is how ha- things have to be done. I had to be sure about you. Um, but like it's, there's not a, there's not a justification for doing that. And Coates doesn't give her one. Um, and I really appreciated that um, like no one gets to be a pure hero yeah. in this story. Everybody's very human, and I really appreciated that. There's, I think, there's a lot to talk. There's about. There's a there. lot to talk about there. Maybe let's do a little bit of the, you know, what might be interesting to talk about in a book club setting. I don't think you're going to find difficult things to Mm-mm. to talk about, but one that might be especially useful. Often, it's interesting to put characters in couples and sort of think about them together. And so you were mentioning Corinne Quinn, who Hiram has a lot of affection for on the page. It says multiple times, only later did I understand, only later did I appreciate her genius, so on and so forth. Because in the moment, he's like, she's a monster. But the thing he comes to appreciate is the systemic solution she's Mm -hmm. putting into place. Even if some of the implementation pieces were terrifying, wrong, evil, 
the the larger product, which is basically taking over from the inside Virginia plantations and turning them into, you know, racial utopias, you know, like is is remarkable. And so there's, but there are consequences. There's things she does to get there that are difficult to swallow on their own without seeing the big picture. Maybe with seeing the big picture, contrasted with, I think in a lot of ways her 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 mirror image twin um, inverted reflection of the Harriet Tubman character, who is doesn't think on the large terms, mm-hmm. is one individuals at a time. The real Harriet Tubman, to my understanding really was only interested in this one part of Maryland and people connected to this plantation and people and her family. And it was very focused and she did not share the, you know, avenues and methodologies. And, and this book is the sim is similar. Like she's constrained and constrains herself to vouchsafe the people she cares about the most, where it's really the opposite of Corinne Quinn. She's like thinking systemically, not about the individual, the love for the individual people, where Herr is the other side of the spectrum, mm-hmm. completely driven by her love for very specific individual people. And even in her great sort of parting of the Red Seas moment, she's talking about John, it's like a, it's using the specific person to, you know, a, a, as the motivating factor, whereas Corinne is motivated by this sort of larger idea of you don't see the big plan and there's a big there are things afoot you can't understand and she's right and she's wrong but they're both they're two different paths that are both present here and often when you get a coupling like that the the main character is finding a middle you know is a synthesis of some kind will sort of you know take both poles and and find a middle way or a third way or a higher way doesn't really happen here i mean we're we're deep into spoiler territories Mm -hmm. he goes back and uses his power to, to get Thena out, you know, his mother avatar, there's sort of a doubling where he's returning Thena to, to her daughter, much like he wishes he could, you know, re- reunite with his own mother. I, I wasn't really sure what to make of where Hiram's choices ultimately fit in the larger spectrum of choice making we see. So I think that's a really interesting question um, to discuss in a book club, because I, I don't think there's an interesting, or uh, there's not a clear answer to me, at least. I don't know what you think about that, Rebecca. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Hiram collects all these stories and is collecting these characters. And I like that juxtaposition of Corinne and Harriet Tubman as uh, people with kind of the same goal, but also kind of not mm-hmm. and how they arrive at that place and how they are going about their work. Um, Hiram does. I don't know if it's, I don't know if Hiram is making the choice not to like, apply judgment to one of those being better than the other, or if he just sees that there are different aims and that that's fine. Um, there is a, there's a lot of like Hiram's observation and not a lot, yeah. I think, as you were saying of like, of, of Hiram's like solid decision about things or um, what his, like what his take is. Yeah. For he has strong better. feelings for Tubman and Quinn, but they're more feelings yeah. than judgment. I think that's a really good observation. Yeah. It's, too. it's very interesting. Um, he allows a lot of humanity from mm. the characters around him. Um, and I think the stuff around his relationship with his father, his relationship with Maynard, um, there, are, there are some bluest eye elements early in the book when Hiram is fan- revealing that he sometimes fantasizes about like inheriting the whole yeah the whole situation um, and knows that it can't happen, but um, writing about 
and reflecting on his relationship with his father and his father's ultimate recognition that like Maynard was a screw up and that like the best thing to come out of his father was Hiram, um, who is his illegitimate son. Um, it's very, that's just very tangly. There's a lot there. I think there's a lot to discuss mm-hmm. there about, um, like historically, this was a thing that happened. You know, yeah. many slaves were children of the people who owned the plantation, and in many cases, were also products of rape, um, as we and of coerced relationships, as we know Sophia has with Nathaniel Walker. That there's just a you can get into that a lot. I think you could get into the complexity around Georgie's character in a book club discussion. And that's a case also where like Hiram understands he Hiram, you know, is very angry at Georgie for betraying them, but also understands how Georgie got there. Yeah. Um and and I think you can wrestle too with with some of the magic realism elements and with creative inclusion and sort of taking creative license with real historical figures like turning Harriet Tubman into magic. I think there's a lot to talk about there. I thought the, you know, as you know, as the, the old English teacher in me wants to go metaphor hunting, right? Um, which is itself a metaphor. Um, the, the waning days of Lockless and mm-hmm. where it is in the history of slavery in America, but also in the history of that particular plantation's life cycle, um, Lockless is used up, uh, for lack of a better term. We, we, we heard that in the, the old days, the golden leaf of the tobacco was, you know, the, the leaves would be the size of an elephant's ear, and now they're the size of mice ears. And, and to some degree, it's, it's tied to Hiram's father catching fever and dying, which is own kind of Metaphor, I think, of like it burnt itself out. You know, he mm-hmm. was this model, in a lot of ways, a model slave, um, competent, respected from both the quality and the task. Um, and once he was gone, the fortunes turned, not 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 coincidentally, like that. It was the 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 farm could no longer provide the kind of sustenance it had before, and the weakening and waning of the white people owners throw, being thrown into leaf when, you know, there's a really great passage where, where Coates talks about, or I guess Hiram notices the white people don't know how to do anything. They can't pull, they can't fix anything. They can't fix the plantation because they weren't doing any of the work. They don't know how anything happens. Right. And there's this sort of decadence is the wrong term, but a decrepitness. Um, and at the last stage of this particular unsustainable practice, um, and it made me wonder if there's something in the fact that it was at this moment that Hiram is born and his power, it, you know, emerges, right? Is there something about this moment towards the end of slavery? Like Harriet, I don't, we've not given any dates, I don't think in the book at all, which is interesting. I, I have a whole list of things I expected to be there that aren't. And one of them is specific locations and time or specific temporal locations. But I know Harriet Tubman, you know, survived through the Civil War. So we're not too far out. You know, this isn't 1780, um, right. It's like 1850-ish, I would guess. So we're towards the end of um, slavery's codified existence in America. And there's like a movement west. Like we're all talking about going to Tennessee or Natchez. Like that's where you don't want to go because that's where slavery is still vibrant. And even in its own way, worse for knowing that the whole system is unsustainable but this it feels like there's it's a it's fall into winter at all times in this book um and there's something about 
that particular understanding of slavery and the Civil War and the Underground Railroad and abolition being precipitating that ending, but also maybe coming into having some relevance because of the, like what's the chicken and what's the egg? Does a waning come mm-hmm. first, and then these resistant, these more active resistance come first? That come or is the resistance? precipitate the waning but the location in the soil seems to suggest it's like a an elemental cycle that's happening and it's just that that we Mm -hmm. talk so much about the plantation dying that there's something there and i can't quite put my finger on what that's about so that would be something to bring up as well because it's it's you know nature metaphors nothing new under the sun there for sure (laughs) yeah that's a great Former English teacher moment. Yes. I did not get to that place in my symbology of the <laughs> oh, water. Oh no! Dancer. Sick burn. <laughs> Is there anything that you hope comes up when Oprah and Tanahasi Coates sit down to talk about this, or they already have, but that we hope we get to see them talk about when it comes out? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I- I'm sure we're going to hear about mothers and fathers. Um, which, as it should, I guess, I don't know that, that this is a kind of thing Oprah would notice, but I would like to hear Coates talk about something that isn't there, or at least isn't as much as you might expect. But the scenes of brutality that I think we've come to expect in books about slavery, by and large, aren't there. Um, not, not, in the, not in the sort of the Morrisonian tradition, I should mm-hmm. like, like the real, to use the Saida Hartman's term, the scenes of subjection. We do get Sophia and Hiram in chains. We do get the hunt. Um, but but the descriptions and narration of actual violence are, I think, held largely in abeyance. The things that produce trauma are not those moments in the book's sort of telling of it, not the serialized rape of, um, you know, the, the, the women um, that we mostly have to infer, I think, or we don't have to infer, but like, that's part of it. The systemic rape of the women is very much a part of it, but we don't get we don't get scenes of it. You know, Sophia's mm-hmm. Nathaniel's chosen woman. Well, he basically rapes her every weekend, right? But we don't get a scene of that. We don't get those people in the same room, even, um, which is an interesting decision. And I would like to hear Coates talk about why holding that the real, not the real, the most extreme, visceral moments of violence against slaves don't appear in the book largely. Am I wrong about that? Is your experience of reading the book different? My experience of it was different. Mm. Um, I I did notice that the there were not a lot of graphic depictions of the experiences of slavery there, but I took it as Coates trusting the reader to know that that's the water. Of... Oh, yeah, I think so, too. It's not a critique. I just was like, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's, I don't, I didn't find myself needing, like, boy, I didn't, oh, like, well, I yeah, really yeah, thought yeah. slavery was great after reading <laughs> yeah, it. No, that's, that's not what that's I needed, but maybe, I, yeah, I think yeah, you're yeah. right, I think you're right that there's, there might be a way into which further trafficking into those depictions is discomforting, I would say, mm-hmm. and I'd like yeah, to hear him talk and, about that. Yeah, and the as a writer, certainly, yes. like the stuff when Hiram is being hunted is, I think, the closest that we come to really getting mm-hmm. to seeing those kinds of moments happen. And that's 
that experience that he's having is awful, and but not the same thing as these very systemic and repeated um, things that happen to slaves. And I, I did just take it as like, this is the water and um, I trust it. And maybe this is oversight or maybe it's intentional and Coates is part of like, you're a reader in 2019 who's reading a book about slavery. You understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You understand that just systematic rape of women was happening every day. Maybe I don't need to put it on the page. Um, mm-hmm. I think, but it's a choice, certainly, that he That's right. That's like, exactly yeah. right. And I'd like to hear yeah. about that choice. I'd like to hear him yeah. talk about that choice yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to talk, hear him talk about why p- move to fiction. I almost said pivot to fiction. <laughs> um, or, you know, I hope I'm not, I don't think that this means this is the end of Ta-Nehisi Coates' nonfiction writing career, certainly, but like developing the fiction muscles is a whole other set of skills to develop. And he is, I think, inarguably at the height of powers of a nonfiction writer. What is appealing about using storytelling to explore these ideas in a fictional setting rather than using storytelling of just straight up nonfiction, real people, real experiences um, and interpretation of those through the lens of today. Is it to reach a wider audience? Has he been seeing this image of like characters doing the water dance in his head for decades mm. and he'd had to finally write the story? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just really curious about the seeds of um, of how we got a Ta-Nehisi Coates novel in the first place. Because probably like, I don't know, half a dozen years ago when I really started reading Coates and becoming aware of him, I would not have ever guessed or predicted like, yeah, this guy wants to go to fiction at some point. Yeah, and I guess the the other one for me, uh, I'd just like to hear him talk about it. It seems like the narrative product of the 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 novel ultimately is the formation of this new family unit of... of um, Charlotte and Sophie, Sophia and Hiram, and it's complicated. Um, Sh- Charlotte is not Hiram's daughter, but they share bloodlines coming through the white slave owners. Um, Sophia has expressed to Hiram, use the quote, you know, that to be together means you don't own me. And that that family unit creation is a different thing then the family units were were given in a lot of the book, and it's those are you know, sort of more nuclear traditional family units of a mother and a father and a children. Mm-hmm. The rending of those things is presented over and over again as the central trauma of these slaves' lives, and they they get free, and they then they go back for the daughter, for the for the father, for the son, for the brother, for the sister, um, and this reformation of a different kind of family seems to be some sort of comment on a reconstitution of, a resurrection of, but it's not the same. Um, and may, you know, my my English teacher is saying, it's like, it's not clean, it's not pure, but doesn't mean it's not valuable. Is mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be clean or pure or traditional or um, expected um, to be meaningful, to be beautiful, um, to be a scene, a, a scene and sight of meaning and power. Um I just wonder how conscious that was of like the thing that's being created here is a new kind of family unit that embraces or at least acknowledges that it isn't as it could be, or maybe as we would have chosen, but we can still, we don't have to be subject to all of the crap that happened that compromised Mm -hmm. all the things we might have wanted anyway. I think just curious about that conversation. Um, Oprah is an interesting and interested reader and... 
tends to ask questions that surprise me. So yeah, right. What would be the most surprising question Oprah could ask? You're like, oh, Oprah. Oh, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, by virtue of it being a surprise, I can't predict it, Jeff. Well, okay, fair. <laughs> that's, a, you, that's a lawyer's <laughs> trick answer, Rebecca Shinsky. I don't like that. <laughs> Had to have a moment of ungraciousness. Um, I would be surprised, and I would love to hear if she got really nerdy about like narrative, like by, by literary history, like, you know, is she like, you know, you've got a Faulknerian opening here and does she bring up calls? Like, would she do the kinds of, would she oh, be interested in any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, I think we could do some bingo for Oprah. Oh, that I like. Discussion. Yeah, and like bingo. Like how many minutes into this will it take before someone name checks Toni Morrison? Probably not very Probably long. not far. Probably not um, far. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think we'll expect. We can expect to hear them talk about Morrison and his other influences. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe other significant slave narratives. Maybe we'll get some Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we 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 would expect her to ask him about his own family's yeah, dynamics and, and how they. Are, are there any like? Did he you know channel how he feels about his son to right. the fathers and son stuff and, or his right, mom or like. You know, and we get you know, stuff about his son and their relationship right, exactly. in, between the world and me. Like their their relationship is the whole frame for that book existing. That um, what do you bring from your life as a father and your life as someone's son into this exploration of fathers and mm-hmm. sons? Yeah. Um, so yeah. there we go. Anything else you want to do on the way out here? I just think at the very end, did we like it? Did you like it? Are you glad you read it? Those are different I, questions. I am. Um, very much so. Um, like I said, it feels like, it feels like the first installment of what could be a very, very interesting Mm -hmm. literary career. Um, and I, I think that's a major achievement. I think it would be unfair for him to think that he was going to write Song of Solomon as his first novel. (laughs) Not even Toni Morrison wrote Song of Solomon. And just saying that out loud shows you how ridiculous it is, but also kind of that was in the ether to some degree, that that was a possibility. Um, You know, it's not even, I don't think like Jesmyn Ward, he was sort of a career fiction writer, you know, churning out short stories in, in freshman, you know, workshops. And so you don't, it's not. You know, there's a version of this that's more like salvage the bones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think is kind of what we said before. But that, as a first novel, is, I mean, one of the great first novels I've ever read, but also the product of a lot of honing. Right. And I just don't know how much honing time he's had to do with fiction. Yeah, I think the expectations for this were super high to the point of being unfair. Farcical, just, yeah, right. Yeah, because of his reputation, Um and so I hope also, like, it's not a perfect novel, but it is a very good one. Mm-hmm. And I hope that there is grace given to ta Coates by reviewers and readers through that lens of, like, the expectations were just off the charts in a way that basically no one could actually meet those no. expectations, um, especially in a first novel. I'm also really glad that I read it. Um, as you were saying earlier in the show, like that one of the ways that we both value books is, is, is this interesting? Like, even if it's not, I would rather read an interesting mess <laughs> to use yeah. the phrase that, that we've had on the show before than something that's just pristine, but doesn't give me anything to sink my teeth into. And this is far from messy. Yeah. I was going to say it. Mess is yeah. too strong. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. far from messy. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. And 
it's always a good sign to me if we're going to talk about a book with each other and I don't want to talk about it yes. until like the real conversation. Like right. I didn't want any spoilers that we wanted to just come into this clean. And that was a good sign to me. Like, oh, I, I am enjoying this. I um, think it's probably in hindsight better than I should have hoped for from mm. Coates. I mean, again, not knowing, I'm assuming mm-hmm. for the moment that he came to fiction relatively late. Like he's a writer um, of prose and I've been reading him since the early when he was just doing online stuff for the Atlantic um, and a wonderful writer of essays and, and nonfiction prose but I don't my own take is that doesn't translate particularly well um, you know it's helpful to know how to write and have an ear but for something this ambitious with this much packed into it and, and it's slavery and the Underground Railroad and magical realism and you're in the shadow of people who have done things that are Mount Rushmore level work to do it this well um, is a real achievement. It's the book is an achievement. It's yeah, to, not a class. I don't think it's going to be a classic, but it's an achievement for sure. Yeah. To be the caliber of writer that ta Coates was before this book is already a huge achievement. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then to be able to do that and then have your first entry into fiction writing be as strong and as and as ambitious as this is, is is a double, like to be a double threat really is very uncommon and super hard mm-hmm. to pull off. Um, and that it's, that it is this good and um, this fully realized and ambitious and that his editors let him go to all of those places, right. I think is also a sign of trust in what's to come. But I, I think, yes, it's worth the 400 pages of reading mm-hmm. time for, um, for whatever amount of time that takes you in your reading life, this is one you won't be sorry that you spent time with. Yeah, and I guess as a as a to speak selfishly as a reader, you know, when I heard this book was announced, and this was coming hot on the heels, I think, um, of We Were Eight Years in Power, which I thought was a you know everything Coates, you know, doing everything you want Coates to do. Right. And I, I guess at that moment, I would have said I'd rather have another one of these, whatever he wants to. the The big Coates about the big Coates book about reparations is sort of the one I'm using as my like uh, philosopher stone. Would you rather have that book or something else? And at that moment, I said, "Boy, I would really, I'd rather, prefer, I'd rather have the big Coates book about reparations. You know, that article built into, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the seed around the sand around which a pearl of a book forms." I was like, well, I mean, I'm sure I'll be interested, but boy, I wish I was getting that. Having read this, it's awfully less clear to me which of those I would prefer. Oh, um, that's I just less less clear. I mean, I still think I would choose the big Coates book, but it's closer than I would have thought. It really mm-hmm. is. It's closer than yeah. I would have thought. Yeah, that's totally fair from my experience, too. I will oh. definitely read whatever he does next. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um all right, that's our show. You can, I don't, do we talk about links? I guess there was Constance Grady's piece in Vox we talked about a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'll try to dig up that um, Shabon, if it is Shabon's interview. Yeah, I'll with find Coates, it. <laughs> um, and put the bookriot.com slash listen. Um, I guess, are you going to watch the Oprah thing? We didn't talk about this. It comes oh, out. I got to do the thing. I'm going to figure out some way to watch it. I don't think point. I'm doing the Apple TV, TV Plus, Plus thing, yeah. but surely like clips are going to leak out. So we'll see. It, that remains to be yeah, determined. Right. And then uh, for next time, if you want to work ahead or have it already in, in your head, um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo Plus Juliet. In, it, it's a key. That, that plus is canon in uh, Baz Luhrmann's <laughs> world. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.